33 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Time is defined by Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. There was time before Christ and there was time after Christ. And while historians still to this day wrestle with the the correctness of the dates, there has never been an event more significant, more defining, more polarizing than the events surrounding the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing more defining, significant, or more polarizing. One of the early church historians, Josephus, wrote this about 33 AD and the events transpiring. He wrote this just 60 years later. Now there, there was a time, there was about this time, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. A historian, a Jewish historian, someone who knew the significance of Jesus the Christ and how events from then on would be different forever, even 60 years later, had a sense of something that was happening. I'm a fan of history. I always have been. Uh, I think the reason I love history is because I just love a good story. In fact, uh, I've only been given two awards in school outside of sports. One was in fourth grade for academic achievement. And at the end uh, of the particular program where I got the award, I had to ask my mom, what is academic achievement? Not a good sign. Uh, The second award was in fifth grade. (laughs) And that was for most enthusiastic about American history. That was uh, a stretch, stretch from my teacher trying to make sure everyone in class got an award for academics. Somehow, well, I loved I loved a story, and I, and I love it now, and I love even church history, Christian history, and it's a subject that I think so often in our disciplines, as we really try and get inside the story of Jesus, that we overlook. But there's so much truth, there's so much excitement that we can gain from really taking a look inside uh, our early church history. And in fact, uh, really towards this end, in a recent book uh, titled uh, Christian History Made Easy, the editor of Christianity Today, Mark Galley, writes this. He writes, the church history is being stolen by professional historians who have discarded reporting tales of tragedy, valor, and pathos for writing textbooks crammed with dates, social analysis, and political posturing. That's mostly how we view history, especially in school. It was always about, let me just cram these dates in my mind so I can get an A on the test. But he knows that there's so much more. It's being shoplifted by television, which lulls us into an entertainment stupor so that our minds can no longer grasp anything more than complicated, anything more complicated than Wheel of Fortune. Tell us what you really think, Mr. Galley. Well, there's some truth here. There is something about our history, about the history of the church that really is a part of God's bigger story about how he is constantly bringing people 
back into relationship with himself. And that is really the essence of this series. That's the essence of 33 AD. God bringing us back into relationship with him. This is how Galilee concludes this quote. He says, how do we bring church history back? We can write it in a way that shows its relevance. Because if it doesn't matter tomorrow, right, it's just an intellectual exercise. It's just more information. Well, boy, is it relevant. You know, as I've uh, studied church history over the past several years and just over my life in, in following Christ, there are a couple of things that I've found really interesting. And really, before we get inside the story of 33 AD, we've got to go way back. In fact, way, way back to the, even to the story of creation. Don't worry, we're going to get there before this service is over. So let me see here. I practiced this. Let me see here. I got a count here. One, two, three. Well, what I've found as I look throughout history is that God somehow uses this kind of, this ebbing and flowing process, events that we would think have no redeemable quality to bring his people back to himself. And there are a couple of markers here, and there are a lot of different, a lot of dates that we could draw allusions to here. But here, the first I see in creation Creation where God starts with nothing and somehow he, at this nexus, at this point right here, he brings humanity very close. He creates us. And then what happens? There is this dispersion and God's people just scatter. And then we see the story of Abraham right here, somewhere around here. Where Abraham was the one that God had promised, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And somehow because of something that he did, because he honored God, God said, I'm going to do something here. And I'm going to bring my people back together again. But it wasn't too long after that that the people of God dispersed. And so somewhere maybe right around here we see Moses' story. Where we find the people of God exiled in Egypt. And God uses this horrible situation of exile into slavery somehow to bring God's people back to this point where he could send them out and promise them something new. What does he do? Through Moses, he says, here comes the promised land. I'm going to deliver you. You know the story of the parting of the Red Sea. All of these wonderful things happen. But prior to that, there was devastation. There was slavery. But God was finding a way to bring his people back to him. And the story continues. Here's just one example. The story of Nehemiah where the people of God were once again broken down. Their city was devastated, but somebody had a vision. Nehemiah said, it's, this is not the way it should be. And the scriptures say that his heart broke when he saw what had happened. And so from God, he gets this plan and he starts pulling the people of Israel back together, back together. We can do this. We can do this. You ever had a coach like that that just takes a team of nothing? Maybe a teacher that, that pulled you together and gave you just a, this breath of encouragement and said, we can do this. You can do this. This was the story of Nehemiah. And so once again, in spite of what history was saying, what looked like just a series of events happening, God was finding a way to bring his people back to him. And so we find this story here where we pick it up. This here is the story, the most significant story of all, which is the story of Jesus. But just before this, less than 100 years or so before 33 AD, and the dates aren't exactly right, but somewhere in that range, something happened too. 
Because before God could bring his people back, something was happening in the nation of Israel. Something was happening. In fact, uh, Rome had become a superpower. Rome had decided that we're going to take over the world and we've got a superior society. We've got a way to do this. And so somehow Rome was going to just infiltrate every nook and cranny of the world. That's what they wanted to do. They had a way of, they had a, a desire to create roads everywhere and let's create common languages and let's do this. Let's, let's glorify the arts. But instead, something was happening. Where it looked like just an exterior, just a series of events in history. Somehow God was bringing his people to the most important place in history. And that was to be found in the story of Jesus. Well, Rome was trying to figure out, you know, how, how do we pay for this? <laughs> how do we do this? How do we finance this? Because wars are expensive, right? We know that. We know that today. Wars are expensive and then all of these conquests are expensive and all of these roads are going to be expensive. So what do we do today when we need money for roads? We tax. Rome knew that they had to tax. But they had to be creative because they were just becoming a superpower. And everybody wasn't thrilled about Rome just yet. Everybody was a little, a little bit nervous. And so what did they have to do? They had to find a way to somehow infiltrate each tribe and nation and find ways for individuals from those particular tribes and nations to represent taxes, to draw taxes out of their own people. Hey, we're just Rome. <laughs> we're just Rome. We want to do all this. Get, if you're mad at us for taxes, get mad at your own people. That was their theory. And so you see this story beginning to unfold. And from this side of the equation, it's easy to look at it and say, boy, God's people, they were just confused. I mean, they were crazy. Why couldn't they just see where God was trying to move? But isn't that our story today? This past week, uh, Michael and Gail, our senior pastor and his wife, uh, were on vacation. And they're hopefully still having a, a great time. They're down in Florida. And uh, in fact, Michael's been sending me pictures from his iPhone. He's getting so handy with this thing. It's so cute. Uh, here's a picture that he sent me to let me know what he was doing. He said, this is what I'm doing. He's doing nothing and he's reading this book. You can't really see it, but it says, Inside of a Dog. He wants to get inside the dog's mind. Look for that in a series uh, coming soon, I bet. That'll be, that'll be a great one. But uh, so he's just sitting there. And I thought, you know what? Let's, let's, let's just send him something nice just to let him know that, uh, that we love him. We love Gail. And so I got on my, my, uh, my droid, my Verizon droid, and uh, typed in uh, bakery. Because I know Gail loves brownies. And I know Michael loves meat. Uh, Gail wins. So I, uh, I, I looked for a bakery, and I found a bakery four blocks away from where they were staying. Well, as I go to the website, I found out this, web, this, this bakery, it's called We Take the Cake, uh, is one of Oprah's favorite bakeries. In fact, I don't know if you saw her whole thing where she did uh, My Ten Favorite Things, something like that. Well, one of her ten favorite things is the key lime cake from this bakery. So I'm just, I'm thinking, this is going to be great. So we call the bakery and we say, hey, listen, four blocks away, can you send this cake to, uh, can, can you deliver it? And they said, well, when do you need it by? Well, we've got to have it by Friday. Well, if you want to guarantee it by Friday, you're going to have to FedEx it. 
I'm going to, four blocks, I'm going to need four blocks. It's all it is, four actual blocks, not Canadian blocks, not European, just four American blocks somewhere in there, you know, just, just, you know, less, probably less than a mile. Yeah, we're going to have to FedEx it. And there was just no way around it. And so I'm laughing at how ridiculous it seemed. So yesterday, Michael got, or rather Friday, got a FedEx package from four blocks away uh, of one of Oprah's favorite cakes. Now think of the carbon footprint on that cake. I'm imagining that it just went all the way around the world and somehow made itself back to Michael. And he sent me a picture saying, this cake looks awesome. So he finally got the cake. And as I was thinking about today, and as I was thinking about our story, thinking about how church history, Christian history, has unfolded and continues to unfold, I thought to myself, this is the story of my life. This is the story of my life with God, when often he's just four blocks away. I'm saying, no, I've got a plan. I'm going to go all the way around here, and I'm going to figure this out. I'm not going to quite listen to the really, actually, what's happening. I'm just going to wander, and hopefully, eventually, I make it there by Friday. What about your story? Where are you today with God, with the story of Jesus in your walk with him? Has it even begun? Do you find yourself having something in common with the story of the people of God? Whether you're close to God or far from him, where you're just wandering around. Well, the history continues. The history continues as we look inside again, this story of taxes because so much in this early church in the first century revolved around taxes. How are we going to pay for this? So we know that, that Rome has sent and, and even given the opportunity for people from different tribes and nations to buy into this opportunity to take taxes. And the deal is, is that Rome said, we only need this much money. You can take as much as you want. We'll have your back. Don't worry. We'll have your back, but uh, we need to make sure. You can take whatever you want, but, uh, you know, that's all up to you. We're just Rome. (laughs) Don't get mad at us. And so enters this concept of a tax collector. And that really brings us to our story this morning. The story of someone who saw the events of Christ, the events of 33 AD and beyond, unfold right before his very eyes. His name was Matthew. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Not just a story, but a, a, but a historical account even in some instances of who Jesus was and how he lived. Well, here's what we know about Matthew. We know that he wrote this book, Matthew, the first gospel, to predominantly a Jewish audience. To a group of individuals who at the time had relegated faith to a series of activities. If you do this, somehow that makes you right with God. If you do this, this puts you outside of God's love. But Matthew's the one who wrote the stories. Who chronicled better than any other gospel the stories of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. Where Jesus came and he said, everything that you thought that it meant to follow God, you are so wrong. You thought it was about this, but somehow it's about this. You thought somehow it was about hierarchy and and being right with me was about power and privilege. But I'm telling you that it's your responsibility to use your power and your privilege and your resources and your very life for the sake of those around you. And the stories went on and on and on. And this was Matthew's account. He went on and on and set up this story for the first eight chapters 
of what he was about to, about to set up in Matthew chapter 9, the most defining event in Matthew's life. And that was the moment he stood face to face. Perhaps for the first time, we don't know this for sure, but we know it was the moment where he stood face to face with Jesus Christ. And that's where we pick up our story here today, Matthew chapter 9. Now, just before this, actually, we don't really know why. I don't know if he was there. I don't know if he, if he was just retelling the story. But just in the verses just before Matthew chapter 9, where, where Matthew meets Jesus face to face, we know that Jesus gets off a boat and he heals a paralytic. He knows that, that the religious people were really focused on the words that Jesus was saying. And Jesus didn't just heal him, but he said something that really blew the minds of everyone who was listening. He didn't say, first, I'll heal you. He said, your sins are forgiven. Well, that was blasphemy. That meant that was absolute you know, punishment by death for anyone who said that because it was only God that had the ability to forgive sins. Everyone knew that. Every person reading this book in the first century, first and second century knew that. But Matthew was about to change the course of history forever. And his history was about to change forever with this. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, from healing this paralytic, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. So we know that Matthew was a tax collector. But I want you to think for a minute, what was going on inside this guy's mind? Who was Matthew? First of all, he was Jewish. He had heard the same stories that all of the apostles had heard and grew up with. And all of those who walked with Jesus, all of those that were close to God at that time knew. He probably had large sections of of what we consider our Old Testament today memorized, committed to memory. But there was something that happened in his life. And we're not certain what it is. and I'm not even going to begin to guess. That when Rome said... Who would like to buy into this right to tax your own people, to be considered a heretic, to be considered an outcast, to not to have to turn your back on God, not even being able to come into the temple and worship, to give up everything, your family, everything that you know, for, for a bag of gold. There was something in his life, that a, a switch flipped. I don't know what it was. And it might have been just the... The failure that he experienced in the church, in his church, and his experience with God growing up. Maybe he saw just how thin this system of rules and uh, obligations that the people of God had relegated at that point, worshiping God to be about. Maybe he was tired. I don't know what it was. But for whatever reason, he turned his back on everything. I don't know what brought you here today. I don't know where you are in your relationship with God. But in a room this size, there's no doubt that there are individuals here who have said, God, I have given you my last shot. There was a time where we were close. But now because of whatever situation throughout my history, something that happened, I am so far away from you right now. Matthew was feeling that. He was sensing that. He was far from God. He was an outcast. And his disciples knew it. Tax collectors, uh, in fact, often throughout Scripture, you see 
where scriptures doesn't just say, doesn't just lump sinners together. It says sinners and tax collectors. Sinners and tax collectors. They were both dirty, but tax collectors uh, deserved their own category because they had turned on their own people. This was Matthew's story. So we continue. And this is it right here. This is the second portion of this verse where Jesus, face to face, gets off this boat. And you can almost picture the disciples in the background seeing the tax collector booth. Here we go again. Let's think of what story. Or the, who's going to spit on him this time? Watch. Watch what Jesus does. J- Jesus is going to knock his whole cart over, I bet. I mean, he is just going to crush him. Watch what happens. Look what he did to the Pharisees. If you imagine that, look at what he's going to do to the tax collectors. He is going to rip them apart. So Jesus, I almost picture this. Give me a little bit of grace here. I picture that, you know, Peter's there who's always got something to say. He's looking back. Watch this. Follow me. Hey, Matthew. Yeah, tax collector, Matthew. Eye to eye, right here. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and he followed him. Now, a lot of pastors and preachers you've probably perhaps heard in the past talk about how Matthew left it all, turned his back, and and just became this devoted disciple of Jesus. We don't know that for sure. And we know that this was defining for Matthew. We know that standing face to face with Jesus changed him, and maybe looking back, he was able to see that's where his life really began with Christ. We don't know for sure, but we know something significant happened after that. You can imagine the disciples again, I cannot believe this. He's saying, Follow. What do you mean, follow? (laughs) This is not going to work. Come on now. Jesus takes it a step further. He says, Matthew, in the next couple of verses, he says, Let's go to your house. Yep, that's right, Peter. We're going to go to this guy's house and we're going to have a party with the other tax collectors and the sinners. So Jesus goes and he meets in this house. And it says that he was reclining, which was a posture that was similar to when you have great friends over to your house on a Saturday night. You're just having a good time sitting back, watching reruns, talking about what happened throughout the week. This was Jesus' posture. Not a very religious posture, but one that said, I am care about your story. This is the story of 33 AD. This Jesus that entered into the story of Matthew found a way to get into his story, a history that was so far from God and found a way to bring him closer to God into relationship with him. But the Pharisees were listening. The Pharisees were watching. They were waiting to catch Jesus. And kind of in a sneaky way, instead of asking Jesus directly, they said this. You kind of imagine that they're watching this whole situation unfold. And they say to some of Jesus' followers, they say, what's happening here? He's, your, your teacher is following, or rather he is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. What's going on with this? And we don't know exactly what happened next, but we know somehow Jesus got the message. And so this is how he responds. He says this. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need 
a doctor, but the sick. Now, Jesus, as in a rabbinical tradition, knew how to ask questions that, uh, that his opponents had only one answer to give. And that was, well, of course, it's only, you know, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And so the tax, rather the, uh, the Pharisees had to agree on this. And so here, in essence, what was, was happening, I mean, you know, he says, Matthew's listening to this, and he's telling this story. And imagine if you were Matthew, and Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You know, Matthew, Matthew could have taken offense to that. I'm sick. But somehow, in his recanting of this story, Matthew knew he was sick. You know, as I talk to people who are far from God, most often that I hear from their stories is that they know they're far from God. They know that, that something's not right. They might not be able to articulate it. They might not know yet exactly what it is, but there is something that just isn't entirely resonating. And Matthew understood that. Yeah, I'm sick. I need something. I don't know what it is. I'm far from God. And, and just a moment ago, I was sitting in this booth and I was so far from you, but somehow this Jesus found a way to enter into my story. And now he's at my house and I have been far from God, but now somehow he's talking to me about relationship. He's asking me about my life. He found a way to come into my story. This is the story of 33 AD. Well, it goes on in, not, in, in verse 13 to say this. But go and learn what this means. And Jesus is so great. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, what he's doing very strategically here is he's quoting a passage from an Old Testament prophet, Hosea, who was dealing with this very same issue. Thousands, maybe, maybe hundreds of years prior, where the people of God had made following God about rules, about what you have done, about all the stuff that you've, that maybe has kept you away from God and had taken away the heart of the relationship that God so desperately has always wanted to have with his people. He's always wanted to have. And here's, here's really what I believe Jesus was saying. He was saying, whoever would listen, there are two platforms on which to build your life. There are two platforms. The first is the platform on what I've done. What I've done. Now, this could be a couple of scenarios. The first is what I've done right Somehow what I've done right earns me the right to be in relationship with God. I've done all of these things. I've followed the religious order. I've gone to church. I've done exactly everything that this book has said for me to do. And there are some of us who have been walking with God for a long time. And we are still living in that same place where we're trying to make our relationship with God about stuff that we've done. Or that we're doing. Somehow, God, does this make you more pleased with me? But he said, Pharisees and anybody who would listen, there is something greater. There's another platform. But even before I get to that platform, the other side of that coin is maybe the stuff you've done that you think is keeping you from God. The bad stuff. The stuff, the part of your history that seems irredeemable. 
stuff that only maybe you know about. The things that you forgot about, the things that maybe in your mind are starting to come to mind. As you're thinking about, ah, oh, I don't want to think about that. Because of that stuff, there's no way I can be right in relationship with God. There's just no way. Either way, Jesus was saying this platform is flawed because he says over here, he said there's a whole nother platform and it's based on who he is. Who he is versus what I've done. This is what Jesus was saying. Whoever would listen, people close to God, far from God, if you are missing the point, if you've made your life a relationship with God, if you've tried to make it about what you've done, it's broken, it's flawed, it'll never work. Now, does that mean that we're not supposed to do great things and, and, uh, and, and those who are walking with God, that great things can't happen? And that just like the song that, that we sang this morning, that we're going to follow him into the, into the worlds, into the lives of the broken, that we're going to feed the hungry, of course. But somehow we have to be able to separate to know that those are only out of response for what he's done and who he is, for who he is. And really, here's where this story becomes relevant to us today. Here's why all of this matters. I'm going to give you just a couple of thoughts as we, before we leave today. The first thought is this. And these are thoughts from the history maker. Is that God will find a way. He's been doing it since the beginning of time. He's been doing it all throughout history in ways where God's people were so far from him. He has been finding ways to get into the story of humanity to do what? To bring you closer to him. I mean, Matthew, what is Matthew's history? He finds himself at this tax collector booth and somehow he had turned his back on God and he was rich and and had everything that maybe he wanted, but he was so far from God. Somehow this entire grand meta-narrative of history was working just for him at this moment. The whole entire Roman Empire needing to be taxed, needing to, to pay for the roads and for everything, somehow brought him to a point where he could be in relationship, standing face to face with the God of the universe. What about your story? What parts of your story have you deemed irredeemable? Assumed that maybe God just overlooked that. A span of time that you'd like to overlook. Maybe it's decades. But for whatever reason, know this. That God hasn't just been, he wasn't necessarily the author of the bad stuff, the hard stuff. But he was constantly finding a way to bring you to a point where you're even here today. And I believe that with my whole heart. That's the story of God. He used a train wreck of a tax collector to illustrate that being in a relationship with God is not nor ever was about what I've done, but it's about who he is. Here's a second thought. And this is, this is really awesome. God will find a way 
to use your history, your story, your life to change the lives around you for his purposes. He wants to do it. The portions of your life, the story, all the things that have unfolded over the past maybe decades that you have said there's no way God could use this. He wants to use it. Look how he did it in creation with Abraham, exile in Egypt, with Nehemiah, even bringing Roman occupation into Israel. Your story has eternal value for someone sitting next to you. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker. I don't know who it is, but God wants to redeem your story. Because what we, what we have to take into account here is that, is that this point, right here, right here at 33 AD, the world had never been smaller than it was right here. It had never been smaller. Why? Because Rome had created a common language. They were creating a common currency. There were transportation. There were roads everywhere. And so the world was primed for what was about to happen in Matthew 28 when when Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Because the disciples said, well, maybe we can do that. Somehow the world was never going to be this small again. And it's as if God was using all of history. It's as if he had a plan to use all of history to bring everyone closer into this understanding of who Jesus Christ was. And we find just 300 years later that all of a sudden Christianity is the, uh, is the religion of Rome. And there are lots of bad stuff that happened all throughout that time. My goodness. But God found a way to spread his story all throughout the world. God wants to do the same with your story. He wants to use it. He wants to redeem it. He wants to use it to change the lives of those around you. We had a breakfast yesterday morning. It's a men's breakfast. And uh, we're doing a series that we're calling My Life in Three Words. And boy, it was a fantastic time. If you were there, you know it. And uh, we had a a fellow named Barrett Esseray who, uh, who spoke for us. And he's, he and his wife lead our A2, 20s, and 30s class. And what was so significant about Barrett's story was this. is you had people in this room that were well into retirement. And you had people in this room that were just out of college. And when Barrett shared his first two words that described his life, when he said that, uh, when he said, let me look at these words, unqualified. And hypocritical. Every man in the room nodded their head. I am unqualified and I am a hypocrite. And those two words are based on this doctrine of what I've done. We'll never do enough somehow to earn God's favor. We're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. But he didn't leave it there. Barrett's third word was trust. Trust that there is a God that's bigger. That wants to redeem our stories that wants to work on our behalf to not just uh, somehow overlook our past, but to use our history for his sake. That's the story of Jesus. And every man in the room was nodding their heads. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I need. That's the story of Jesus. And I don't know where you are today in your relationship with him, but as we get closer to Easter over the next several weeks, I want to challenge you to evaluate your system of beliefs. And if 
Whether you've been walking with God for a long time or you've yet to begin, if your life as you evaluate it is based on somehow pleasing God through what you've done or overlooking the stuff that you've done in the past, or if you think somehow what you've done is keeping you from him, I want to challenge you to abandon that thought process. And over the next four weeks, as we draw closer to the greatest story ever told, invite others into your process. Because it's who he is that changes everything. Just as he's done since the beginning of time, God will find a way to use your history, your story, everything, the most irredeemable parts of your story to bring you closer to him. But he's also going to use your history, your story, to change the world forever for his purposes, if you'll let him. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, so often I have this tendency to build my life, my relationship with you on the stuff that I'm doing. God, sometimes I even look at the the plasma screens out in the auditorium or out in in the hallway and I think, look at all the stuff that I'm involved in. God, that doesn't please you. Not in itself. I know it makes you happy. But God, I pray that as I grow and and draw closer to Easter, that you would, within me and my friends here in this room, would you challenge us to evaluate our entire system of belief? Because God, since the beginning of time, you've been drawing history back to yourself. You've been using the most irredeemable things and experiences throughout history and even in our own lives to bring us closer to you. So God, would you take our lives? Would you draw us into community like never before? And would you give us a whole new picture and a whole new image for who you are? I pray this in the matchless name of Jesus.
following you into the world.